Today's scripture is from Luke 2, uh, verse 8 to 16. And in the same region, there were shepherds of the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in a swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph, and the baby lay in a manger. Good afternoon again. Um, we are going to be in Luke chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Luke chapter 2. And again, as we have shared, today we've come to celebrate the second week of this year's Advent season. Advent, as we've explained many times, is a word to come or to arrive. And really, it's marking not only the original birth of Jesus, but also remembering, anticipating that his return for Jesus promised that he's going to return. And when he returns, he's going to restore all things to himself. So as believers, as a church community, as we have done every year, we're going to celebrate Next four weeks, remembering and looking forward to not only the hope, today we'll be talking about the peace, the joy, and the love of the season. So today we're going to look at peace. We're going to be talking about peace that only Advent can offer for us. Because the angels uh, in out in the field, Luke chapter 2, tells us this was the message that was proclaimed by the host of angels Glory to God in the highest, peace to men on earth. But this idea of peace can mean different things to different people, right? Yet no matter who you are, every one of us, I'm sure every one of us desire to experience more peace in our lives, in our workplaces, in our homes, wherever we go. We, we want to experience a sense of tranquility, in our homes, our workplaces, in our relationship with others, perhaps within yourself. Um, yet the reality is when we live in a big city like Seoul, or maybe we live in a fast-paced world like ours, it's really difficult to feel like we're actually experiencing peace. We have a lot of young parents, parents, newborns. I think peace is probably the last thing you're thinking about. You're thinking about survival. You're thinking about chaos, peace, is something all of us want, but it's really hard to come by, at least the world that we live in. In fact, according to a study done by an organization called KFF, this is an organization out of North America, average share of adults reporting symptoms of anxiety disorder has jumped from 11% in 2019 to 
whopping 41% just in two years. Can you believe 41%, right? This, this study was done, 41% of people that have participated in this survey feels like they're dealing with some kind of anxiety or being anxious or fear. It is the single most common mental illness that is affecting, well, this is an American study, 40 million Americans, mostly under the age of 35. So as we speak about peace of Advent, I, I feel the need to acknowledge the reality of how many of us may feel this morning or this afternoon, especially with all the changes and challenges, ongoing changes. I was supposed to be actually in America for four days to do a friend's wedding. I'm not doing that anymore. Right? Rules have changed. I cannot leave Lois and the girls for over 10 days and, and, and all this stuff. So, you know, I was talking to my friend and trying to find them a replacement, trying to find a, 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 a pastor to do their wedding nine days before. I mean, it's little chaotic. They found someone, answered prayer. Um, I feel the need to acknowledge the reality of how many of us may feel this morning with all the changes and challenges that we had to deal with just in perhaps 2021. So for many of us, peace may seem like the furthest thing. Yet Advent reminds us this truth, that the Prince of Peace has come and he is going to continue to go with us no matter how many situations or chaotic experiences that we may have life. So Luke 2, from the opening lines of the gospel, before we go into Luke 2, I love the gospel of Luke because from the beginning of the gospel, Luke is very clear about his purpose and objective. Notice Luke's account of Jesus' life in Luke chapter 1 doesn't begin with phrases like, once upon a time, long, long time ago, like many of the fairy tales we've come to love. Rather, Luke begins, Luke chapter 1 begins with an introduction, very clear introduction, a personal message that this physician named Luke has written to an actual person named Theophilus, someone who's paid for this project, a patron who's paid for this book project. And from there, Luke says, he clearly explains why he's, he's written this elaborate account of a man named Jesus' life. And he says in chapter 1, I have researched, investigated, interviewed eyewitnesses, those that have walked with Jesus, those that have spent time with Jesus, concerning this man, Jesus, in order to give an orderly account of his life. So just by Luke chapter 1, introduction of Luke chapter 1, we know this account is not some fairy tale or some fictional story, but a factual account of a man named Jesus. In fact, if you look at the other gospel, Gospel of Matthew, the tax collector, begins his gospel by giving us a list of uninspiring names, a bunch of Jewish names. Now, if you wanted to write a great story, if, you, if, you're, if you're thinking about writing a great story, if you think about great movies, you don't begin with a long list of uninspiring names, right? You begin with a great hook, great beginning, yet we get names in the Gospel of Matthew because this event that Luke and Matthew and John and others have covered was not a fictional story, but a true 
actual story that has happened. So with that in mind, let's jump to Luke chapter 2, verse 8 to verse 16, as it was read by our brother Mike. So that very evening of Jesus' birth, uh, Luke tells us God sent an angel to a group of local shepherds, right? Not religious leaders, not some respected leaders of the community, but shepherds out on the fields. We're so familiar with this story, we might just go past that without thinking much about it, but this is a big deal. Because in the first century Palestinian culture, shepherds were known as being shady, or my wife will say dodgy, that's Australian for shady, untrustworthy. They were considered so untrustworthy that they could not stand in the court of law as actual legitimate witnesses. Right? This was their sort of understanding of what it means to be a shepherd back in the time of Jesus' birth. Yet, yet Luke tells us God chose these local shepherds out on the field to receive, to be the, the original recipient of this wonderful news of birth of Jesus. Right? Not religious leaders, not respected leaders of the community, not politicians, not devout Jews, but these local shepherds. So we have to ask this question. This is really interesting. Why would God choose poor, uneducated, uninspiring, outcasted group of shepherds to be the original recipient of this great news, right? This gives us clear window or clear, a better understanding of why Christ did come, right? He came not for the righteous, but sinners. Luke 5, Jesus actually says that I did not come for the righteous or, or people that think they don't need me or people that think they are righteous, but I came for those that understand that they need a Savior. So this is the message for people like you and I. And in verse 14, this is the main message that the shepherds out in the field hears, not from one angel, now there's a host of angels. And they're singing sort of the song, and I think I want to highlight verse 14. And, and these angels says, the coming of this baby, coming of this Savior, means two major things. One is glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those whom He is pleased. Peace on earth. Peace on earth. So why do you think these angels pronounced peace? They could have said hope. They could have said joy. They could have said love. Of all the things they could have pronounced, it's peace that is sung out of the lips of these angels. Peace on earth. I mean, when you hear the word peace, I mean, it's very, very calming. What, what do you think about what comes to your mind? What do you think the shepherds thought when they heard the word peace, peace on earth? Perhaps a sense of tranquility, a place where there is no violence or war. Some of you guys may love the peacefulness of your home. Some of you guys may love, think about your, 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 your 
place you're born or place of your where your parents are. You think about these places, right? We think about peace. Well, the Greek word for peace is irene, and 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 that word is actually translation of a Hebrew word shalom. Irene shalom, and they both can mean a state of tranquility or absence of war. Yes. But it also points to something far better in place, right? Something far greater than simply not having any conflict or war. The most basic meaning of shalom in the Hebrew scripture is this idea of complete or whole, this sense of wholeness or completeness. Like a perfect stone, with no cracks or holes in them. This idea, or the wall, the image of this wall that's been built, this complex wall that's been built without any blemish. And, 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 and really, shalom in the scriptures often used to describe people's well-being. Right? Do you have shalom? Even today, when you travel to Israel, right? People there will greet each other with shalom. Shalom, shalom. Say to each other shalom. Just it's it's nice. It's relaxing. Shalom. In saying this, right? Uh, even even today, they're actually saying more than just a hello or goodbye. It's not just greeting that they're doing by saying shalom to one another. It's not more than simply this idea of peace be with you. You see, when people greet each other with this word shalom, they're actually saying something more along the lines of may you be filled with a complete and perfect sense of peace. So perfection, completeness, wholeness. So really the main idea of shalom, is the main idea is that life is full of complexity, full of moving parts and relationships and situations, and when any of those things go out of alignment because of you, you get sick or you get busy or you can't complete that project, for some reason, this idea of your shalom breaks down. So when the host of angels in Luke chapter 2 proclaim shalom on earth, they aren't simply de- declaring absence of war or violence. They're not saying we come in peace. But really the idea or the shepherds, what they're thinking about, because these are Jewish shepherds, they're thinking about is restoration, wholeness, completeness, perfection. And really, this is the good news of great joy. That true restorer, true shalom, the prince of shalom has come to make the world whole again, to make your life whole again. And in order to really understand the Jewish idea of shalom, we really have to rewind the tapes to Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, the writer of Genesis tells us God created, God created you and I in his own image. The shalom God created creation, created the world with shalom, right? And we were called, right? The, the Adam and Eve were called to cultivate shalom in all these places. It was called the cultural mandate. Go, be fruitful and multiply. Right? That's call of shalom. And, and really, at that time, all creation was in state of true shalom. And this perfect shalom, the infinite creator of all things, God himself, was in complete communion with his creation, 
with his people. Yet we know in Genesis 3, sin began to destroy that very shalom and cast the world into a place of utter brokenness. When Adam and Eve chose to take the very, the one thing, God said you could have everything else, just don't touch this one tree, touch the very thing that God told them not to touch. Sin entered and sin began to destroy and really undo the shalom that existed in creation. So the fallen world that we live in with its violence and heartache and pain and death are really visible results of the shalom that was lost in Genesis 3. Yet we see throughout Scripture, after Genesis 3, even right after people sinned, God always had a plan, had a vision to restore the shalom that was lost. And throughout the Old Testament, Right From Genesis all the way to end of Old Testament, we see glimpses of shalom. Right? And when God established kings, there were many kings. God chose a nation, gave them kings. And these kings, when they were chosen, they were chosen to be God's agent of shalom. Right, But yet when we look at the history of kings of Israel, no king was able to truly bring shalom. Because they themselves were marred with sin and brokenness. So throughout the Old Testament, God raised up these prophets like Jeremiah, like Zechariah, like Isaiah. And and he raised up these prophets to speak of a future king, a true king. A king who will reign, whose reign will not end. And, 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 And Isaiah says, a prince of shalom will come. The wonderful counselor will come. And he will restore creation back to himself. I mean, this is just three passages, but Old Testament is filled with these promises of a true king that will come. And so these promises of Jeremiah 23, Isaiah 9, Zechariah, and other passages finally come into fruition on this night. Luke chapter 2, through the birth of this baby born in a manger, And this is indeed the reason why the angels in verse 14 proclaim glory to God in the highest and peace to man on earth. And really this was Jesus' primary purpose of coming to creation, right? To restore shalom. You see, Jesus came to restore shalom not only in our lives, but in our relationships, the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about creation, the way we think about our maker. But how do we really enjoy shalom in our lives? How do we truly experience shalom in our lives? You may say, Simon, I've been Christian for years and years, and I don't have shalom. I don't feel like my life is complete. How do we continue to practice receiving shalom? Well, the question that we ought to ask ourselves is, what's preventing you and I from really experiencing shalom that God has come to give? Again, in order to answer that question, I think we got to reflect back on the story of Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve decided, right, to, to disobey. And the question is, what really caused Adam and Eve to disobey the one thing that God had told them not to do? 
right? Why take that one thing that God had told them? You could have everything else. You could have, you could have apples, you could have pears, you could have oranges. Just don't mess with that one tree. It's very interesting. And, and, and Genesis, the writer of Genesis tells us these were the tempting words of the serpent. This is the really reason why Adam and Eve decided to take one thing that God told them not to take. And it's Genesis chapter 3 verse 5. The serpent says, for God knows. The serpent says, take this fruit. You're going to want it. Because for God knows when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. See, what's the real reason why Eve and Adam decided to take the one thing that God told them not to take? It's mistrust. They begin to question the goodness of God, right? They assumed, right, at that moment when they were tempted with this fruit, they assumed that life could be better, right? Life would be better if they were in charge, if they were like God, if they didn't have to no longer commune with God, but become like God, right? Life will be better. It was about this idea of self-sovereignty, this idea of, I want to be like God. I want to be in control. And, and really, many, many years later, when we look at our struggles with peace and our struggles with understanding shalom, it's not very different from Adam and Eve. I mean, it, many years have passed and we have evolved. We have, we have this amazing technology and we have really improved the quality of life. Yet our struggle, we continue to struggle with anxiety, with fear and worry. I think it's because part of us, just like Adam and Eve, we want more control over our lives. Really, when push comes to shove, when we think about when we reflect on our lives, I think many of us would confess that we don't really want to have to rely on God. Right? We don't want to have to trust God to provide for us. Right? We would rather do it ourselves. I mean, if we're really honest, right? when we think about why do we lack praying, right? All, we talk about importance of praying. Why do I lack prayer life in my life? Right? Why do I struggle with prayer? Because at the end of it, when push comes to shove, I think I could provide better for myself. I think if I was in control, my life would be better. And this idea of waiting on God, this idea of God providing for us, we'd rather just do it ourselves. And that's, that was, that's really the picture of Adam and Eve in, in Genesis chapter 3. This idea of, hey, we could be like God. We don't have to rely on God. We don't have to live under His rules. Well, give me, give me that fruit. Let's take it. But here's the unfortunate lie that all of us believe and, and, and buy into, right? At least I buy into this lie. See, we assume if we could have just a little bit more control over the events of our lives. A little bit more control over how life works. Perhaps you're working on a contract and you're like, if it was up to me, this contract would be done. Or you're waiting for a relationship. If it was up to me, I would have met. I mean, you're thinking, if we could have a little more control over the way we live, we assume we won't be as anxious. We won't be as fearful. 
Right? This idea of control and anxiety, I mean, they work together. But when you think about it, is that really true? If we had a little bit more control over events of our lives, do you think we'll be less anxious? Because if you think about it, compared to past generations, like think about my, 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 my mom was just in town. I think about her generation and my generation. I mean, we have a lot more control over our lives, right? Every one of us have these smart devices in our pockets, right? And our fingertips. And they tell us the weather. Even before we walk outside, they tell us the temperature. They tell us how to get to work. You turn left, turn right. You're going to avoid traffic, they tell us the air quality. You live in Seoul. You got to understand how's the air quality. I mean, they t- we have a lot more control than even past generations, right? The news that we consume, the shows that we watch. No one watches cable TV. I mean, none of us really watch cable TV anymore. What do we do? We're on Netflix or these stream services. We can befriend somebody that we want to. We can, you know, unfriend people that we don't like. It's very easy for us to be able to control our environment. We have endless number of tools and pills and apps that wasn't available 30 years ago. Just 30 years ago, none of these things. I mean, 30 years ago, iPhone did not exist. 30 years ago, really, if we wanted to check the temperature, we had to walk outside or listen to radio, Right? And the weather was half the time wasn't even right. Yet the numbers show us, right, that we are the most anxious generation. And and it's not even close. We saw the numbers just in two years, 11% to 41%. So if the solution of our anxiety or, or this struggle that we have with anxiousness is not having more control, if that's not the answer, then what's the solution? What, what are you talking about, Pastor? I mean, I mean, how do we really fight this anxiety or this fear of the unknown? Well, Scripture continues to tell us it's not about having more control, but it's actually about giving away control. The key word that we find throughout the scripture and what Jesus has called you and I to do throughout his life is is the word surrender. It's not take, it's surrender. right? Jesus tells his disciples, his disciples are excited about how popular this movement is becoming. They're excited about all the healing and all these people that are coming after them. And Jesus interrupts this ministry and he says, if you really want to come after me, Deny yourself and take up your cross. It's about surrendering. It's about letting go. C.S. Lewis, we mention his name a lot, a wonderful writer. Does a wonderful job of unpacking this idea of surrendering. In his book, Mere Christianity, I think it's chapter 11. And let me quote, I'll quote what he says about surrendering. He says, and I quote, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day. Death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing 
Nothing that you have not given away, given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. In the kingdom economy, C.S. Lewis says, nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ. You're going to find Him. And with Him, everything else thrown in. Do you want to experience more shalom in your life? Do you want to experience more wholeness, completeness in your life? Lewis's vice is, give it up. Surrender everything. Because really, it's, it's, it's profound, but it is very simple. There is no resurrection without death. There is no renewal without us letting it down first. It's, it's a very simple principle that Lewis is talking about. And friends, we know this. Following Jesus does not mean you will never face hatred or experience loneliness, that you will never be in despair or you will never be disappointed. You will never face failures. No, following Jesus, you're going to experience things that your non-Christian friends have experienced as well. Bible never says we're not going to experience these things, but in those seasons, in those moments of pain and anxiety, following Jesus means we have access to the Prince of Shalom. We have the ability to surrender our lives, our finances, our relationships, our parenting, our marriage, onto the one who can revive it. You see, the wonderful truth of Advent that we've been talking about last week, we talked on hope, is really simple. It's this idea of Emmanuel, God with us. Friends, this is why Jesus' birth in, in, in Luke chapter 2 was announced as arrival of shalom, arrival of peace. You see, Jesus came to offer his shalom to you and I, and indeed, he is our shalom. You see, Jesus was the whole complete human that you and I were created to be, yet we fail to live out. So through his life, death, and resurrection, he has restored us to be his shalom makers. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you are not only a new creation, but we have been called to participate in the life of our rabbi teacher, Jesus. To go as Jesus did onto the places of brokenness as Jesus came to our ghettos, to our neighborhoods. As Jesus went after these shepherds, at best who were seen as shady and dodgy. We have been called to do the same thing, to do the hard work of bringing restoration. For some of us, when we think about restoration, that may be the calling to our homes, our workplaces, our relationships. Knowing that bringing shalom, participating in the life of Jesus is going to take humility, sacrifice, and patience. I mean, that's really the only way we can begin to bring shalom to the places that there is no shalom. Yet Jesus has not left for us to do it on our own. And this is the gospel. 
Jesus not only lived a life that we could not live, not only died the death that you and I deserved, his life and his death is what we get credit for. Not only that, the spirit of Jesus that raised Jesus from the dead. I mean, can you imagine this? The spirit of Jesus that lifted Jesus from the dead now goes with us. And he is our, our enabler. He is the one who empowers us. And that's really the message uh, of Luke chapter 2. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, this reminder. Lord, for many of us, being anxious is a struggle that we face every day. For, for some, some of us, Lord, it's, it's just hard. It's, it's even hard to be in a room with a large crowd. Our, our, our anxiety is triggered by so many different things. But Lord, we are reminded once again, life is not about taking control. Life is not about being self-sovereign. But really, the best way to live life is by surrendering. So on this Advent Sunday, as we celebrate peace, as you have uh, come to this earth, come to our homes, come to our neighborhoods with peace that we need, would you now continue to equip us? Would you continue to challenge us? Would you remind once again? Uh, for Lord, we cannot give to people what we do not have. Lord, we pray if anyone is struggling with anxiety in this room, we pray for your healing hand. We pray, Father, for, for, for you to continue to reveal yourself to us. If any, anyone is struggling, paralyzed by sense of fear, fear of the future, fear of the new experiences, if anyone is, is overthinking and, and, and stuck in this place, overthinking about all these things, would you simplify our minds, God? Teach us how to truly live. Teach us how to die so that you could revive us once again. We love you. We thank you. Just let me pray.